0: Welcome to part two of our three-part story, All Blood Runs Red, the incredible true story of Eugene Jacques Boulard, the World War I hero of France, who became the first African-American to become a fighter pilot. He was by anyone's standard a true hero. He lived a full life, and his accomplishments deserve a bigger place in the annals of history. There have been a few books and no major motion picture as of yet. Our hope at 1001 is that by shining some light on this incredible man, his story will become a little better known. In Part 1, we shared the story of Boulard's younger years, including the story of his father's having to leave his kids while he hid from a determined lynch mob, and his father's advice, telling young Eugene that if he wanted real freedom as a black man in America, he would have to look elsewhere, namely France. Advice that Eugene followed as he left his shack in Columbus, Georgia at age 12, leaving the grave of his mother and his still-living but often fatherless brothers and sisters behind. Their stories, at least what we know from stories written based on Ballard's statements, are in Part 3. Following railroad tracks east on the long road that would eventually take him to France, and Ballard is a great example to make the case that if you don't have a destination in life, you'll never get there. He was given shelter and family at a camp of gypsies who taught him how to care for, breed, and ride horses, as well as how to be his own man. In Part 1, we explained that at age 16, he left the gypsy camp and worked his way north to Richmond, Virginia, then down to the docks at Norfolk, where he would end up stowing away upon a German freighter bound for Scotland. Soon discovered there, he was set to hard work and soon earned the respect of the captain and crew. Enough so that when the freighter reached Aberdeen, Scotland, the crew rowed him to shore safely at night rather than hand him over to the local police as a stowaway or derelict. He left quickly for Glasgow and spent a few months working as a lookout for gamblers, then tried work as a longshoreman, finding a gym where he could work out and build up. They took a liking to the 145-pound billard and taught him how to fight, finally getting him lightweight matches for prize money. Billard was growing up, getting tough, and still keeping one-eye turned toward France. In Liverpool, he joined a traveling minstrel show called Friedman's Picaninnies just as they left on a tour of Europe, doing comedy acts and entertaining the audiences between shows. The Davis troupe toured all the major cities, entertaining, and when they reached Paris, Billard had found home. He had kept up with his boxing and somehow fell under the tutelage of African-American welterweight champion Aaron Lester Brown, known as the Dixie Kid, and Billard won his first prize fight in 1913 at the age of 18. When he turned 19, World War I had begun, and it was October 19, 1914, and he was ready to fight for his new country. He joined the French Foreign Legion, which was the only way foreign born men could fight for France, and was placed in the Moroccan Division, trained with the skills and hardships known to all French foreign legion fighters, and he was thrown into the action early in 1915, which is where we're picking up with part two of this three-part story. Billard served in the Moroccan division of the 3rd Marching Regiment. By 1915, Billard was a machine gunner and saw combat on the Somme front in Picardy. In May and June, he was at Artois, and in the fall of that year, fought in a second Champagne offensive which stretched from September 25th to November 6th, 1915, along the Meuse River. On July 13th of that year, he was transferred to the 170th French Infantry Regiment within the French-Moroccan Division, known as the Swallows of Death, a name given to the division by the Germans who feared and respected them. Boulard was given a nickname while serving with them, the Black Swallow of Death, and at least one book was attributed to him using that name. Toward the end of the year, the 1st Moroccan Division became one of the most decorated units in the French Army. In one battle of the Champagne Offensive, 500 men began the battle, but only 31 were still standing when it was over, a 94% casualty rate. Boulard, who had received a little head wound, as he described it, in the fighting, was one of those few survivors. While recovering from his wounds, Will Irvin interviewed Boulard for the Saturday Evening Post. You can only imagine the reaction of white Americans reading about the heroism of this black man at the height of the Jim Crow era when American armed forces remained strictly segregated and black combat opportunities severely limited. The entry of Americans into the war would have a huge positive effect on the Allied effort, but a dampening effect on Boulard's service. Due to the prejudices, the Yanks still had decades to work out, as we will relate in the story to come. The Foreign Legion suffered high casualties in 1915. It started the year with 21,887 soldiers, NCOs and officers, and ended with 10,683 out of the 21,800. Ballard participated in the fighting on the Somme in Champagne, and Verdun, where he was severely wounded on March 5, 1916. The Battle of Verdun, fought from February 21 to December 18, 1916, was the largest and longest battle of the First World War on the Western Front between the German and French armies. The battle took place on the hills north of Verdun sur Meuse in northeastern France. The German Fifth Army attacked the defenses of the fortified region of Verdun and those of the French Second Army on the right bank of the Meuse. Inspired by the experience of the Second Battle of Champagne in 1915, which Berlard had survived, the Germans planned rapidly to capture the Meuse Heights, an excellent defensive position, with good observation for the artillery to bombard Verdun. The Germans hoped that the French would commit their strategic reserve to recapture the position and suffer catastrophic losses in a battle of annihilation not costly for the Germans because of their tactical advantage. The Battle of Verdun lasted for 303 days and became the longest and one of the most costly battles in human history. An estimate in 2000 found a total of 714,231 casualties, 377,000 French and 337,000 German, for an average of 70,000 casualties a month. Other recent estimates increased the number of casualties to 976,000 during that battle, with 1,250,000 suffered at Verdun during the war. After he was severely wounded and during his convalescence, Ballard was cited for acts of valor at the orders of the regiment on July 3, 1917, and was awarded the Croix de Guerre and the medal militaire from the Legion. He would later remark, I thought I had seen fighting in other battles but no one has ever seen anything like Verdun. Not before or ever since. It was hell. Due to his thigh injury, large infantry days were over, at least for now, but he still wanted to fight for his adopted country, so he asked around as to where he could learn to fly and was sent to the Aero Club, France. Planes had only been invented a few years ago, but the militaries of the wartime countries, especially Germany, France, and Great Britain, saw a huge potential for airborne vehicles that could drop bombs, strafe targets on the ground, shoot at other planes in the air, and provide aerial reconnaissance to the troops on the ground. The planes were lightweight, made of thin plywood, canvas, and metal, and carried machine guns mounted in front of the pilots, which, when equipped with a patented synchronization device, which could actually allow the machine gun to fire through the turning propeller without tearing it to shreds. And I'll add, most of the time, as that didn't always work, the planes, risky enough just to fly, became lethal weapons preying upon each other in what became an aerial war from which legends like the Bloody Red Baron, who was German Baron von Richthofen, would emerge, with him amassing a record of 80 planes shot down before he was brought down himself. The casualty rate for these pilots was high, although more men died in training than from being shot down. World War I introduced the systematic use of the true single-seat fighter aircraft with enough speed and agility to catch and maintain contact with targets in the air, coupled with armaments sufficiently powerful to destroy the targets. By speed, we mean 150-mile-an-hour airspeed. Nothing compared to what today's jets can do, but back then that was moving. Aerial combat became a prominent feature with the German Fokker Scourge in the last half of 1915. This was also the beginning of a long-standing trend in warfare, showing statistically that approximately 5% of combat pilots account for the majority of air-to-air victories. The other 95% were either killed, downed, or still plug in away. The chances of staying in the air for more than 10 missions were dubious. The use of the term ace to describe these pilots began in World War I, when French newspapers described Adolphe Pagode as an ace after he became the first pilot to down five German aircraft. The British initially used the term star turns, a show business term, while the Germans described their elite fighter pilots as Oberkanonen, which roughly translates to top guns. The successes of such German ace pilots as Max Immelmann and Oswald Belke were much publicized for the benefit of civilian morale, and the Poor Le Merite, Prussia's highest award for gallantry, became part of the uniform of a leading German ace. The Poor Le Merite was nicknamed Der Blue Max, the Blue Max, after Max Immelmann, who was the first fighter pilot to receive this award. Initially, German aviators had to destroy eight Allied aircraft to receive this medal. As the war progressed, the qualifications for the Poor Le Merit were raised, but successful German fighter pilots continued to be hailed as national heroes for the remainder of the war. As the German fighter squadrons usually fought well within German lines, it was their job to establish and maintain very strict guidelines for the official recognition of victory claims by German pilots. Shared victories were either credited to one of the pilots concerned or to the unit as a whole. The destruction of the aircraft had to be physically confirmed by locating its wreckage, or an independent witness to the destruction had to be found. Victories were also counted for aircraft forced down within German lines, as this usually resulted in the death or capture of the enemy aircrew. Allied fighter pilots fought mostly in German-held airspace and were often not in a position to confirm that an apparently destroyed enemy aircraft had in fact crashed. So these victories were frequently claimed as driven down, forced to land, or out of control, called probables in later wars. These victories were usually included in a pilot's totals and in citations for decorations. Eddie Rickenbacker, was an American fighter ace in World War I and Medal of Honor recipient with 26 aerial victories. Not bad as the U.S. didn't get into the war until three years after it had begun. Albert Ball was Great Britain's first flying ace, named so in 1917 at the age of 20. While ace status was generally won only by fighter pilots, bomber and reconnaissance crews on both sides also destroyed some enemy aircraft typically in defending themselves from attack. The most notable example of a non-pilot ace in World War I is Charles George Gass with 39 accredited aerial victories. Getting back to Eugene Billard, on May 5, 1917, he earned his pilot's license, number 6950, from the Aero Club de France, earning himself the historical distinction of becoming the very first American-born black fighter pilot in history. He then was trained for advanced flight and combat and assigned to Squadron 93 of the legendary Lafayette L'Escadrille, or Flying Corps, young American volunteers who flew for France. Flying the Spad S7 and Newport biplane fighter aircraft, Billard flew at least 20 missions over the Verdun sector and claimed to have shot down two German fighters, and probably did, noting, as said before, it's hard to get any ground confirmation from your enemy if the planes go down in their territory and the pilots usually didn't have time to accompany their kill to the ground we can get a sense of billard's courage and daring from the encounter that led to his second kill which took place in november of 1917 it was described this way he shot down a german false after the pilot went into a classic immelman turn flying nose up and then turning backward to attempt to come in from behind Billard ducked into a cloud bank and emerged below and to the right of his foe, where he pulled in behind him and shot the German plane down. Billard became a corporal and was known for two major distinctions. The first, painting a red bleeding heart pierced by a knife on the fuselage of his spad. Below the heart was the inscription, Tout le sang qui coule est rouge. Roughly translated, that says, All blood runs red. His second distinction of note, and you have to hand it to him for originality, was the pet rhesus monkey named Jimmy that he brought with him on his flights. Many of the earlier fighter pilots were characters, and Brillard was no exception. He wanted to be remembered. Brillard had begun flight training at Tours in 1916 and received his wings in May of 1917. He was first assigned to Escadrille Spa 93, then to Escadrille Spa 85 in September 1917 where he remained until he left the Aeronautique Militaire. After the United States entered the war in 1917, Billard attempted to join the U.S. Air Service, but he was not accepted, ostensibly because he was an enlisted man, and the Air Service required pilots to be officers and hold at least the rank of first lieutenant. In actuality, Most researchers agree he was rejected because of the racial prejudice that existed in the American military during that time. America's involvement in the war reintroduced Billard to the racism he thought he'd left behind in the States. Edmund C. Gross, an influential American living in France, successfully terminated Billard's piloting career almost as soon as it began. Dr. Gross, a Harvard graduate with all the right family connections, had been influential in establishing the American Hospital in Paris, and when World War I arrived, he saw the need for military ambulances and started an ambulance corps as well, then assumed a military command and started the Lafayette Escadrille, an air combat unit in which American volunteers could fly prior to the American involvement in the war. So as to his usefulness in the war, his contributions were huge but he had a jaundiced eye toward people of color. As American troops crossed the Atlantic, the American army sought to maintain the statutes of Jim Crow. Black and white soldiers were kept separate. Blacks were normally employed in menial services, and black troops were typically led by white officers. Bullard posed a threat to the standing system at home. The U.S., still trying to relive the days of slavery, wouldn't accept the presence of a black pilot, a policy that would not change until the ban was lifted in 1940. The Tuskegee Airmen finished their training in 1942. Bullard applied to transfer to the U.S. Air Force in World War II, but despite his proven record of superior combat skills, his application was ignored for the duration of the war. The U.S. would finally get over its problem with Bullard many years after his death in September of 1994 when the U.S. Air Force accepted him and made him an honorary second lieutenant in the Air Force. That came about under the term of Air Force Chief of Staff General Tony McPeak, whose interview with 1001 covering what we've learned from Vietnam to today, including the danger in today's North Korea, will be airing next week. Part 3 of this story will air the following week. While Brelard became a national hero in France, he was, if nothing else, scorned by the white American military establishment and the press. Just as he was in his early days in Columbus America's involvement in the Great War once again designated him a persona non grata As it turned out 188 American pilots mostly attached to the Lafayette Escadrille served at the front in World War 1 51 of them were killed thousands of French British and German pilots lost their lives in the fighting It was on the ground that American troops were most influential in turning the tide of the Great War. Bullard, again a victim of American racism, but this time in his adopted country, returned to the Aeronautique Militaire, but he was summarily removed after an apparent confrontation with a French officer. That might have been cooked up as well. So he bandaged that torn thigh up tighter and returned to the 170th Infantry Regiment until his discharge in October of 1919. Officially out of the French Air Corps Eugene decided to settle in Paris' 9th district, working first as a mechanic and then returning to boxing at a local gym. In his part-time, he wrangled a job as a jazz drummer in one of Paris' largest clubs, the Zellies in Pigalle. All along the legendary Rue des Fontaines, there was a line of jazz clubs, bars, restaurants, and theaters. It was the hot spot of entertainment in Paris, also called the Montmartre district. Today, nearly 100 years later, it's just a quiet street and home to small shops and restaurants. Zelli still exists as a small Italian restaurant. Now, listeners, pour a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, and we'll do our best to bring Eugene Bullard's world to you with actual archival footage of Joe Zelli's nightclub in action in the 1920s. Glenn Compton is on the keys. Cricket Smith is playing the trumpet. Edmund Allen is on the banjo, Otto Michael on the sax, the very popular and well-loved owner Joe Zelli speaking in French and English, and none other than Eugene Billard on the drums. According is a little rough, but it was 100 years ago, so give us a break. It was actually shot for a newsreel, and you can see the place is packed.
1: give you a joke. You're not going to see this number for about 15 minutes. That's a good joke. That's a real joke, but you don't see this up.
0: An entirely white crowd on this night. The men all in suits. The women all in dresses. One sidewall is filled with caricatures. The waitstaff is all white. And one pauses to light the cigarette of a single woman seated at a table. It was just another night in the life of Eugene Jacques Boulard. Joe Zelli, sometimes called the king of the cabaret keepers, was one of the best-known characters in Mount Mantra during the 20s. And his club, the Royal Box, was a huge favorite with both Americans and all visiting nationalities. Zelli, an Italian by birth, had begun his career in New York in 1908 as a waiter and soon entered the nightclub business that same year at the corner of 43rd and Madison in New York City and later running the Oasis Club in London, then moving on to Paris. Zelling knew mob ways and people, and knew how to get things done. One example, after World War I, a lot of American soldiers, especially black soldiers who wanted to stay in France, and others, were flocking to Paris, because back in America, Prohibition was in effect. And two, Paris was inexpensive. But the nightclubs in Paris were restricted by licenses that ordered them to close at midnight. In 1918, Zelly found a way, with Bullard's help, to pay a special tax, meaning someone in city government must have agreed to a percentage. And in 1919, he opened a members-only club at 17 Rue Comartin, and he kept it open all night long. It did, as you can guess, gangbusters. They soon moved to a two-story affair at 16 Rue Fontaine, one of Joe Zelli's first acquisitions upon arriving in Paris had been Eugene Boulard, who joined Zelli's Zigzag Club as the drummer and manager of the musicians. He also booked the talent and got to know all of the entertainers in Paris. On that newsreel, picture a below-ground main floor area with a bandstand, stage, dance floor, all lined with ornate pillars and full of tables. People dancing shoulder to shoulder and all tables filled. At one end is a mirrored alcove. The entrance was up at ground level, and that made way onto a balcony, so when you walked out on the balcony, you'd be overlooking the crowded dance floor. On the balcony, Zalki had installed royal boxes set up with telephones in them, and patrons would call other boxes. It was all pretty exciting back in the day. Those caricatures were being made by a little Italian named Zito, and he was keeping those walls full. Zelly was a warm and friendly guy to everyone, a real Las Vegas type, and he and his club soon became legend. Zelly also owned a huge stable of gigolos and hostesses. All good-looking and all pushing champagne, and they could all dance well. The Royal Box, one visitor noted, resembled a dine-and-dance from the old days on San Francisco's Barbary Coast. Bullard soon became heavily involved in a number of clubs and businesses in the Montmartre District, where notables like Louis Armstrong and Josephine Baker were tearing up the scene. Billard found his way to the Grand Duke, located on the 52nd Rue Pigalle, known today as the Rue Jean-Baptiste Pigalle, and while today it's a Chinese restaurant serving up Mugu Pan, in 1920 it was serving up a spicy mix of jazz music and dancing, catering mostly to black entertainers and audiences. Although that mix was getting whiter every year, as American expatriate celebs like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald were finding Le Grand Duke a great place to hang out and have a good time, the club was owned by Georges Jamerson, who had an eye for talent, one notable talent being Ada Bricktop Smith, a dance legend who began her career on the smoke-filled dance floor at Le Grand Duke.
2: And if I'm feeling tomorrow just like I feel today, hope I don't, I got a hangover. Feeling tomorrow like I feel today, I'm packing my suitcase, gonna truck away. St. Louis woman with the diamond rings carries my man around by her apron strings. What if it wasn't for her powder?
0: Jamerson also knew a good drummer when he saw one, and put Bullard to work, and it wasn't long before the drummer war vet, known as the Black Swallow of Death, turned nightclub manager at the tender age of 23. While Louis Armstrong, Florence Jones, Josephine Baker, and Anna Bricktop Smith performed, Langston Hughes cleaned dishes in the back, knowing someday that the lines of poetry he would pause to enter in his scrapbook would make him famous Ballard stuck with his job, saved his money, and when the right opportunity arose, he opened a gym and then his own nightclub, named the La Escadrille, where all his pals were invited, entertainers and friends, one of which was the legendary Fats Waller, another the French flying ace, Charles Nungesser,
1: Patton, putting tempo in old Manhattan. Everybody is out high hatting, spreading rhythm around. Everywhere you go, trumpets blaring, drums and saxophones rip and tearing. Everybody you meet is raring, spreading rhythm around. Up in Harlem, in any flat, they give you that thing, which according to one and all is what they gon' swing. Those who can't afford silks and satin, dames will jiggle. Those who are Latin, come from Yonkers, the Bronx, and Staten, spreading rhythm around. Yeah.
0: In 1923, he married Marcel Stroman. In an article from a Paris newspaper at the time, titled The Decorated Airman and the Aristocrat, we read In 1923, Eugene Billard married Marcel Eugenia Henriette de Stroman, the daughter of a wealthy Parisian family. He was introduced to the wealthy de Stroman family by two painter friends and despite his working-class occupation as an exercise trainer to the rich and lesser so, the aristocratic parents had no objection to him taking their daughter dancing. On July 4, 1922, with great trepidation, he declared his love for Marcel to them. Just over a year later, July 17, 1923, the couple were married in an early afternoon civil ceremony in the Civil Hall of the 10th Arrondissement District. Their wedding party guests included highbrow relatives on her side, and on his friends from the military, the entertainment, and sports world. They made merry at the Brasserie Universelle at the corner of Avenue Opera and Avenue Denou, and in French style, the wedding party stretched late into the afternoon. Come nightfall, the father of the bride hired ten taxicabs to shuttle the guests up the hill to Montmartre, where they continued celebrating until well into the wee hours. As the announcement goes on, the lovebirds honeymooned in the chic Atlantic seaside resort town of Biarritz, near the Spanish border. Their first apartment had a magnificent view of the Eiffel Tower, Bien Sur, across the River Seine. The couple had two surviving daughters, Jacqueline, born in 1924, and Lolita Josephine in 1927. When the marriage ended in divorce, 12 years later, in 1935, Eugene maintained custody of the children. Sidney Bechet once wrote of Billard, If someone needed help, he, Billard, did more than any Salvation Army could with a whole army. And what he wanted to do for himself, he did in a smooth, smart way. He'd make himself the kind of man people had a need for. The cabarets, the clubs, the music caners, where there was some trouble they couldn't straighten out by themselves, they called on Jean. He was a man you could count on. Boulard was doing well. In addition to the Grand Duke, where he soon became a co-owner, he opened another club, Les Cadrilles, at 5 Rue La Fontaine, and a gym called Boulard Athletic Club at 15 Rue Mansart in Pigalle. Marcel, his wife, after a time, wanted him to give up his nightlife and become a country gentleman. Boulard mentioned in his memoirs Like most American men, who aren't sissies, I could not stand the idea of being a gigolo, even to my wife. So I told her she could lead a life of a full-time society woman if she liked, but to count me out during working hours because I was not going to give up earning a living. Soon we were seeing so little of each other that we decided to part company. They divorced in 1935, and he was awarded custody of their two daughters. In early 1935, a new French intelligence service, created three years earlier to monitor the 17,000 Germans living in Paris, recruited Boulard as an agent. They knew he was American and that he could speak German and French. So many Germans flocked to his gym and his club that he was the perfect pick. His police handler, Georges Leponquet, assigned a 27-year-old Alsatian woman named Kitty Terrier to work with him. The Germans had murdered her father during World War I, so she had a score to settle. They made a good team and provided a large amount of information to the French. Boulard's autobiography quoted him as saying, Of course, they, the Germans, figured no Negro could be bright enough to understand any language except his own, much less figure out the military importance of anything they said in German. So as the Nazis talked together at my table and I served them, They were not at all careful about discussing military secrets within my hearing. These I promptly passed along to Kitty, who could slip unnoticed out of the bar, if need be, and pass along everything to headquarters. French intelligence recruited another prominent African-American, Josephine Baker, who passed along info on German clients in the nightclubs where she performed. Josephine Baker was to become a huge star on Broadway in the years to follow. When war came to France in late 1939, Paris was blacked out at night and the nightclubs in Montmartre were finished, at least for a while, and many of the entertainers, like Ada Smith, left to find fame and fortune elsewhere. Others were conscripted by the German army. Berlard closed his nightclubs and his gym. June Jewett James, a wealthy American woman, offered him a job as a mayordomo at her chateau in Nivelli in southern Free France, and while there, serving German visitors, he continued to send information to Kitty. At one formal party with no Germans attending, Bellard decided to wear his full dress uniform complete with medals. No doubt he chose to wear them knowing that one guest would be the American Dr. Edmund Gross, who, as you recall, had ended Bellard's flying career in World War I. Gross got a good look at the medals and said, Ballard, I didn't know you had the medal militaire." And Bullard shot back, I thought you kept all my records, just as you kept the scroll issued me by the French government while it was handed out to every other member of the Flying Corps. And Dr. Gross had done just that, using his position of authority to deny Boulard the paperwork proving his awards. But the one thing Dr. Gross couldn't take was the medals, which were handed directly to Boulard. When curfew was relaxed in 1940, Bullard returned to Paris and reopened the Grand Duke, but the Germans were now attacking northern France, and the time was cut short, and soon Kitty was warning Jean to get out fast. Boulard left Paris to join the fight again, asking Kitty to care for his daughters while he found a regiment to fight with. Kitty helped him pack food and books into a backpack, and he walked from Chartres to Le Mans on the 14th of June, 1940, just as the Germans were occupying Paris. Later on that hot day in Le Mans, France, the 45-year-old Boulard tried to fill his canteen, but there was a crowd surrounding the only water pump, and he figured it wasn't worth the fight. The next morning he found the 51st Infantry Regiment in Orléans and ran into Major Roger Bader, a lieutenant in World War I, now a major, whom Boulard had served with at Verdun with the 170th. Boulard's memoirs tell us, Major Bader assigned me to a machine gun company and ordered me to install machine guns on the left bank of the Loire River, opposite German infantry, and to take charge of a section. We managed to hold the Germans back until midnight. Then they brought their artillery to within three miles of the city, on the right bank. The French were ordered to retreat. The Germans bombarded Orleans and set it on fire. Thanks be to God the wind was blowing from east to west. This saved Orleans and one of the world's finest cathedrals. The Germans continued shelling Orléans for two days, eventually occupying the city named after Joan of Arc, whose story we told in our 1001 episode, When Knights Were Heroes. On June 17, 1940, when Marshal Pétain asked Germany for an armistice, meaning he surrendered most of France, including Paris, to the bloody Nazis. 100 miles south of Orléans, at Le Blanc, The next day, Ballard's regiment took heavy fire. Ballard was running across the street with a light machine gun with a company of men when a shell blast killed 11 of his comrades and injured 16 others. Ballard was hurled against a wall, smashing vertebrae in his back. Hot shrapnel hit his forehead above the right eye. Ballard was picked up and transported to a field hospital where he learned that Charles de Gaulle, the president of Free France, Had broadcast an appeal that day from London asking all French soldiers to join him in the fight against the Nazis, saying the flame of French resistance must not be extinguished and will never be extinguished.
1: La défaite française a été causée par la force mécanique, aérienne et terrestre de l'ennemi. L'action foudroyante de cette force mécanique a amené l'effondrement du moral, du commandement et du gouvernement. Devant cet effondrement, deux voix s'ouvrent de l'abandon et du désespoir. Elle menait à la capitulation. C'est celle qu'a choisi le gouvernement Pétain. L'autre est celle de l'honneur et de l'espérance. C'est celle que nous avons prise mes compagnons et moi. Nous croyons que l'honneur des Français consiste à continuer la guerre aux côtés de leurs alliés et nous sommes résolus à le faire. Nous espérons qu'un jour, une force mécanique supérieure nous permettra d'avoir la victoire Et de la
0: In the years to come, Charles de Gaulle, to whom Eugene Boulard was a hero, would invite Boulard to come and light that flame. Major Bader, once Boulard was on his feet again, ordered Boulard to leave the unit and gave him a safe-conduct pass to Bordeaux, which was not yet occupied. He gave Boulard drugs and Boulard somehow walked it, found the American hospital there and was assigned to the care of Dr. H.C. DeVoe, the same physician that had treated him 25 years ago at Verdun. DeVoe gave him more painkillers, handed him a can of sardines and told him to leave fast because of the Germans caught him. In his French uniform, he was a dead man. So Boulard started walking toward the Spanish border, sleeping on one side of the road, and the next day a French soldier found him took pity on him, and gave him his bicycle. Burlard got on that bike and made it to Biarritz, the city where he had honeymooned, near the Spanish border, and then to the American consulate there. Other Americans were waiting, but the consul, Roy McWilliams, seeing Billard in French uniform, asked the waiting men for clothing for Burlard, who was a target for the Nazis in his French uniform. Americans hadn't yet joined the war then, That wouldn't come until late in 1941, but this was 1940. The Germans were on the move, and Americans were getting out of France while they still could. McWilliams asked to see Boulard's passport, but Boulard said he didn't have one, because when he arrived in France before the First War, Americans could travel without passports. So McWilliams asked Boulard where he was born. His answer? Columbus, Georgia, October 9, 1894. Sir, McWilliams, fortunately for Bullard, knew Georgia pretty well. Bullard, what river flows through Columbus? The Chattahoochee, sir. What's the name of the town opposite from Columbus? If you turn right, Phoenix City. If turn left, Girard, Alabama. McWilliams handed him his pass. On July 18, 1940, and believing his daughters were safe, Billard boarded a ship to America. One year later, he was able to come back and get his daughters out and brought them to New York City, where Part 3 and our exciting conclusion begins in two weeks. If you love our show, take a moment to become a premium member, which will not only give you access to hundreds of premium archives, but it will earn my undying appreciation and respect for all time. The link to become a premium member is in the show notes, as well as the link to get our new app, 1001 Stories Network. And that app is now available at Apple App Store and at Google Play App Store. So you can get it for iOS or Android. It's a free app, and it has all three of our shows on one app. That's 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And if you haven't tried that show, listen to the first five and you'll be forever hooked and 1001 Stories for the Road. In Part 3, Eugene and his daughters find life in New York City exciting, but challenging, as second-class citizens, and Eugene becomes close with entertainer Paul Robeson, who was an active civil rights advocate, and in those days, being a civil rights activist, made you a socialist and a potential commie, since commies were associated with the socialist movement in America. And yes, any search today will tell you that Russia under Stalin and later Khrushchev was pouring money into dividing the classes in America. Sort of their backdoor war on America. But being black in America in the 30s, 40s and 50s, believe me, you wouldn't care where the help was coming from. But when Eugene Boulard gets pulled from a bus after a Robeson concert in 1949 and beaten by civilians and state police, America got its biggest black mark. That day. Join us in two weeks for part three of The Incredible True Story of Eugene Jacques Boulard. Oh, and I wanted to add one thing too 1001 Classic Short Stories will be airing on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. It has been Sunday for a long time. We're going to be moving it to Wednesday nights. Okay? 1001 Heroes, this show, will remain Sunday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Thank you all so much for being great fans, and we'll see you soon.